Good morning, everyone. It's a joy to be with you this morning, and we trust and pray that as we worship together, as we meditate on God's Word, that God and His grace and His goodness might bless us. Turn with me, please, to the book of Isaiah and chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. And we want to break into the chapter at verse 18. Isaiah 40 and verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits upon the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, And see, who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because of his strong, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And just a couple of verses from Psalm 102. Verse 25, the psalmist says, Of old you have laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. And we pray that God will bless the reading of his word. I wonder if I was to ask you to introduce me to your God. I wonder how you would describe him. I don't mean theologically, but rather, how, how do you see, how do you understand him in your everyday life? I wonder if your description, your, your grasp of who he is, I wonder how that compares with how he reveals himself in his word. Archbishop William Temple said this, it is much worse to have a false idea of God than to have no idea at all. 
It is much worse to have a false idea of God than to have no idea at all. Added to that, Jim Packer in his uh, little book, Knowing God, says this, we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing the God who owns it and who runs it. Because then the world becomes a mad, painful place and life a disappointing and unpleasant business. Johnny mentioned earlier, over the next few weeks, we want to look at the, the God of Scripture. We want to look at him as he really is and not as we might possibly have remodeled him uh, to fit into our way of living, as it were. Not simply to, to get to know more about him theologically, but more importantly, to, to try and to grasp who he truly is and how who he is really impacts our daily lives practically. A.W. Tozer writing in the last century said this, the low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils among us. A whole new philosophy of Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. With our loss of his sense of majesty, we come, comes the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. He says, we have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Be still and know that I am God, he says, means next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper. What a, a description. Of, and that's what, how he saw things in the middle of the 20th century. How much more is that true today? But the question is, how do we recover this spiritual deficit, if we could call it that? Given that the decline in our grasp of, of what God is truly like has caused our problems, then recovering that grasp will go a long way in enabling us to recover it. The reality is that we can't keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right as long as we have a view of God that is inadequate or that is incorrect. To be everything that God would have us be, we need to know who God really is and not to know him as we have reconstructed him. So what is God really like? Well, first of all, God never changes. God never changes. In a world that is, is constantly changing, a world where nothing seems to stay the same for a moment, 
how important that truth is. How vital that we have our trust in a God who is always the same. So, what does God being unchanging, what does that mean? When we talk about God never changing, what does that mean? Well, God says in in Malachi 3 and verse 6, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. What does he mean? Put simply, God does not, and indeed God cannot change. What he was yesterday, he is today, and he will be tomorrow. God being unchanging is very closely linked to the fact that he is the eternal God. There was never a time when God didn't exist, and there never will be a time when he will cease to exist. He is from everlasting to everlasting. Sometimes people ask the question, well, where did God come from? Well, he didn't come from anywhere. He has always been there. And he will always be there. You think of the opening verses of the Bible, Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God. He's already there. And we can know what what God is like by the way he reveals himself in his names. You think of the burning bush where he speaks to Moses. We're all familiar with that that incident. And, And God reveals himself by telling Moses his name. His name, if you like, explains who he is. It explains his character. He said, I am that I am. Moses says, who will I tell them has sent me? He says, tell them I am has sent you. He didn't say, tell them I was or tell them I will be. He said, my name that represents all that I am is I am. It's a a constant present tense. To you and me, it's always the same. It never changes. And if you think about it, it can't change for the better because he's already perfect. And because he's perfect, he can't change for the worse. He can't be affected by anything outside of himself. Nothing anyone or anything says or does can affect him. They can't improve him, and they can't take away from him. One writer says this, I like this, All that God is, he has always been. And all that he has always been, he is now. And all that he is now, he will always be. Nothing that God has ever said about himself will ever be changed. Nothing that the the prophets and the apostles have said and written about him will ever be withdrawn. 
I suppose one of the ways of, of explaining God's unchangeableness is to, to compare it with man's constant changeableness. With God, no change is possible. But with man, change is inescapable. You only have to look in the mirror. We were born, we grow, we laugh a little, we weep a little, we work, we play, we grow old, and we pass on, leaving room for those who who come behind us. But God remains the same. He remains the same. Here is an astounding truth that the God that we have come to worship this morning, the God that meets with us this morning, the God that speaks to us this morning, is the exact same God in every detail who walked and talked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden way back at the dawn of time. It's exactly the same. Ever grasp that? He's the same in, in every single detail. What an incredible thought. We read that passage and we think, what must it have been like to have been able to walk and to talk with God in the cool of the day? God tells us that the God that we come to as it were, talk to this morning and listen to you. It's the same God. The God we come to is the God that met Moses at the burning bush. He's the God who stood before Jacob at Jericho. He's the God who stopped Paul on the Damascus road. He is forever. What at that moment, some 3,000 years ago, he told Moses he was. He is unchanging. James chapter 1 and verse 17 puts it like this. He is the father of lights with whom there is no change. And, And he goes on, or shadow due to change. God is unchanging. A.W. Pink says, he is altogether untouched by the flight of time. There is no wrinkle upon the brow of eternity. His power can never reduce and his glory can never fade. What does it mean that God is unchanging. How, how is God being unchanging? How are we able to see that? We could argue that what we've already said, if, if you like, is a theological statement. Uh, it's God's revelation of himself. But, but how, do we, how do we see that working itself out? 
Well, the, the splendor of God's unchangeableness is that he is unchanging in his attributes or his, his characteristics, if you like. Whatever they were before the universe was formed, they still are. And they will be forever. And if you think about it, that must be the case. Because his attributes, his characteristics, are, the, uh, are what he is in himself. They're his substance, if you like. We can see that his mighty power is as mighty as ever. His great wisdom is as great and wise as ever. His absolute holiness is as absolutely pure as ever. And his infinite knowledge is just as infinite as it always was. His characteristics, his attributes, can no more change than God can cease to be. Jeremiah 31 and verse 3 tells us, His word is forever established in the heavens. His love is eternal. He can say, I have loved you with an everlasting love. We see that, that God is unchanging in his characteristics. We see that he is unchanging in his purposes. His purposes will never change. Samuel could say in 1 Samuel 15, the strength of Israel will not lie or repent. He is not a man that he should repent. The idea here is of, of revising your judgment, of changing your plan of action. God never does that. He never needs to. Because when God makes plans, he does so with the benefit of complete knowledge. He knows the end from the beginning. Not only that, but he is in complete control of all things, past, present, and future. There can never be a sudden emergency or a surprise development. There can never be an unexpected turn of events that would make it necessary for God to change his plans. You see, when we change our plans, it's usually because of one or two things. Either we have a, the, the lack of ability to, to foresee everything that might happen down the road, and so something crops up and it means we have to change our plans. Something unexpected, something we didn't have the ability to, to foresee. Or else, because we have the lack of ability to carry out our plans as initially designed, we don't have the power to make it work. But since God knows everything, since God has all power, then he never needs to change the things that he has decreed. Again, the psalmist says in Psalm 33, the plans of the Lord 
stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. What God does in time, he planned in eternity. And everything that he has committed himself to, everything he will carry out. But you're thinking, hmm, what about the likes of Genesis chapter 6 and verse 6, where it says, it repented the Lord that he had made man. Or, or 1 Samuel 15. Does that mean that the Bible contradicts itself? Absolutely not. When God speaks of himself, he has to use language that we can understand with our finite minds. So, for example, he talks about having eyes and ears, hands and feet. We're told he rises early waking, and yet we're told he neither slumbers nor sleeps. This is God describing himself in ways that we can understand. So, when God decides to deal with men in a different way, he describes his actions as repenting. In other words, when God speaks about repenting, what he is doing is he is bringing an end to his previous action in a situation and reply to the responses to that situation. How can I put it? Every illustration that you try to make of God falls down at some point. You just simply cannot illustrate him. But to give us some idea, think about it this way. Your child misbehaves, and so you apply discipline. Perhaps you withdraw certain privileges. You're not going to do that or, or be able to go there again. The whole idea is to bring an end to the misbehavior. And the discipline has an effect. And, and they respond to, to your actions. And so you repent and you restore the privileges. Haven't had a change of mind. It's simply that the course of action you put in place has had the desired effect and is no longer necessary, so you withdraw it. And in a way, that's how it is when God is said to repent. There's no suggestion that he didn't know what the response was going to be. Or that somehow or other he was taken by surprise. And therefore, he couldn't, he couldn't have planned for it. He knows perfectly. And he acts accordingly. God's purposes do not change. Numbers 23 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. God is unchanging in his purposes. He's unchanging in his promises. Very often we say things that we don't really mean. We make promises that we don't intend to keep because we don't know our own minds. 
or, or because somehow our views have changed and we can't stand by the things that we said before. Sometimes we're forced to eat our words because hard facts come along and contradict them. Man's word is very unstable. But God's word, God's word stands forever as a constant expression of his thoughts. Absolutely no one, absolutely no circumstances can cause God to change his word. Isaiah, in verse 6 of the chapter that we read, could say, all flesh is as grass, the grass withers, but the word of God shall stand forever. Not only is that a wonderful truth, that we can trust God, that, that his word is dependable, but the result of that truth is that when we read our Bibles, we read those promises that God has made, he stands by every one of them. All his promises, all his demands, all his statements of purpose, <clears throat> all his words of warning. Jesus himself says in John 10, the scripture cannot be broken. The promises of God are unchanging. For example, God's promise to, to man and his sin that if he will come in repentance and faith and accept Christ as Savior and Lord, he will receive eternal life. God says, if you come in repentance and faith, turn from your sin and put your trust in him, you will receive eternal life. And God's unchangeableness means that when I come, he cannot turn me away. It means when I come as he instructs me, when I accept him, when he gives me that eternal life, he can never take it away. His promise of blessing to those who, who walk in obedience to him. Because he is unchanging, he must fulfill. He can't go back on them. God's unchanging can be seen in that his word stands unchanged and unchangeable. What a majestic truth. How, is, how do we see that God is unchanging? How, how does the fact that God is unchanging, how does it affect our daily lives? How does it affect our daily lives? We said at the beginning, it's not about simply learning, uh, gaining more knowledge or having a better theological understanding. It's about 
knowing God in our everyday lives. So how does the fact that he's unchanging, how does that impact our everyday lives? You might be saying, well, it's all very good, that wonderful theological truth, but how does it affect me? Well, the answer is, it has a huge impact on your life. First and foremost, it's something that brings us great comfort. This, this aspect of God's nature is a tremendous uh, source of comfort. We know that we, we can't rely on human nature. We know that we can't rely on our closest friends. We can't even rely on ourselves. The best of men are but men at best. All eventually fail. However, we can totally depend on God. No matter how unstable I might be, no matter how changeable my friends might be, no matter how changing my situation may be, God is forever dependable. He never changes. If, if he constantly changed his mind or, or changed his opinion, how could we ever have confidence in him? <clears throat> how could I ever be at peace with him? But he's not like that. He's always the same. He is, as we were singing earlier, an immovable rock on which we can totally depend. And that dependability is an incredible source of comfort. But not only that, surely it's, it's a tremendous incentive to prayer. We have this characteristic of God that he's unchanging. Surely, that's the greatest possible encouragement to pray. Not much encouragement in, in praying to a God who, who's always changing his mind about things, who's fickle. One day this, another day that. Granting our request, taking it back again. Meeting our need, withdrawing his help. We'd never know when to trust him. Maybe you're thinking, well, okay, but what's the point in praying to a God whose will is already fixed and can't be changed? Very simple answer to that. That's the way God wants it. What blessing has he promised without our seeking him for it? We're instructed to ask, and it will be given unto us. According to his will, we receive. He says, you have not because you ask not. And of course, we know from his word that he has willed everything that is for the good of his children. Psalm 84 verse 11 reminds us of that. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. 
how amazing to, to realize that when we come to God in prayer, we don't have to worry if he's in a good mood. His mood never changes. He never cools in his affection. He never loses his enthusiasm. He doesn't keep office hours. He's always available. Here's an amazing thought. Right at this moment in time, God loves us exactly the same as he did when he sent his son to die on the cross for us. Isn't that incredible? I think that's breathtaking. What an encouragement to prayer. What an incredible boost to our faith. How can, how can I fail to, to have complete trust in a God who is, is so unwavering in all his ways, who can be utterly re relied upon, whose promise is more secure than the mountains? Psalmist could say, those who know your name will put their trust in you. When he talks about knowing God's name, the name, as we said earlier, represents all that he is. So there we could easily, if you like, paraphrase that. Those who know who you are, who really know you, will put their trust in you. Those who understand the name Jehovah, I am the unchanging one, will trust in him totally. If you think about it, you can't really question God's goodness when you fully grasp his unchangeableness. One writer says, all distrust would fly before it like darkness before the sun. You see, dist distrust comes and takes control when we don't know our God. To know him to really know him is to utterly trust him. It's a tremendous boost to our faith. It's a source of comfort, an incentive to pray, a boost to our faith. And those are not even scratching the surface of how it impacts our daily lives. What an effect! What an impact, a grasp of this incredible characteristic of God has on our lives. God's unchangeableness is one of the things that separates the creator from the created. He is eternally the same, the rock immovable, unchanging in the ever-changing scene of life. Of course, that throws up a challenge. God is unchanging. 
So that means that in all of our dealings with God, all of our desires to please God, means that all the change must be on our part. We must meet his requirements. We must bring our lives into line with his will. And then we see his power at work in us. He is the father of lights with whom there is no change. What an incredible truth. What an outstanding source of comfort. And yet surely, surely it leaves us with a challenge. Given that the God that we worship here this morning is the same God as the New Testament believers worshipped. Can we ever justify being content with a relationship with him that is so far divorced from the early church? Surely, since ours is the same God, we must continually strive, strive after a knowledge, a grasp of him that will draw us into a closer, a more vital relationship with him that will in turn lead us into the depth of, of, of spiritual life that God would have us experience. What is God like? He never changes. Oh, that he would grant us that, that deeper grasp of what he is like. And may it greatly and continually impact how we live out our lives before him. Let's pray. How good, how great is the God we adore, our faithful, unchangeable friend, whose love is as great as his power, and knows neither measure nor end. Our Father, we thank you for the revelation that we have of yourself in your word. We thank you that you are, I am. We thank you that you are the unchanging God. And we rejoice in all that that implies for us in our daily lives as we seek to live for you. Father, we confess that so often we're guilty of reconstructing you in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives. And as a result, we, we fail you. As a result, we find ourselves in all kinds of difficulties. Father, we ask that you would help us, that you would deepen our knowledge of you, that we might know our God, and that we might do great exploits for you. 
but above all that we might live lives that daily bring glory and honor and praise to your name. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me, please, to Paul's letter to the Romans, to Romans chapter 8, to read uh, just a few verses towards the end of this this tremendous uh, chapter. We've been thinking about the fact that, that, that God never changes and how that impacts our lives. And the, the reality is that uh, our faith and the strength of our faith uh, so often uh, is dependent on that which we have placed our faith in. Uh, and that's what happens in life so often. We place our faith in people and in things that let us down. But when we come to God, Paul reminds us here that we are placing our faith in one that we can depend on. The unchanging God is the object of our faith. Verse 31, Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. And all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus. What an incredible passage. And Paul really begins with with the, the, the question of, of opposition. You know, what's going to, and who's going to stand against us whenever the, the unchanging God is the one who is for us? Of course, the answer is no. No one, nothing. And then he, he, he picks up the, uh, I suppose what we could describe it as the question of, of, of separation. He says, you know, what will separate us from this God? What can come between us and this God and his love for us? And he reminds us again, absolutely nothing. And he he has this list of uh, everything he can think of, uh, and and none of these things can uh, separate us from God's love. And then he kind of, uh, as it were, puts a safety net below that, and he says uh, that, nor anything else in all creation. 
So that means <laughs> there isn't anything else. If nothing in all creation, the only thing outside of creation is God himself, the creator. And so absolutely nothing can separate us from this, this unchanging God. And he goes on, if you like, to uh, deal with the question of, of, of affirmation. How, how, how do we know that this is true? Well, he tells us in the, in the closing verses, for I am sure, I am totally convinced. And again, he has this list that absolutely nothing can separate us from the God who is eternal, the God who is unchanging. I think one of the wonderful things about gathering around the Lord's table at the beginning of every week is that it lays for us a wonderful foundation for the week that lies ahead. None of us know what this incoming week holds for us. But we put our faith and our trust in a God who is unchanging, a God who has promised us to meet our every single need. And each time we, we break bread and drink wine, we remember that he who spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all. How will he not with him freely give us all things? He argues from the greater to the lesser. If God, and we've already said that this God that we worship here this morning is the same God who sent his son to the cross because of his love for us. And that love for us is the same today. And as we partake, we're reminded we have no need for fear because the unchanging God says, look, I have given the pride of heaven, if you like, my son for you. Am I going to withhold from you anything else that you need? Of course, the answer is Absolutely not. As we reflect on that sacrifice and remind ourselves again of the cost in order that we might be the children of God. Perhaps someone would express our thanks for the bread, that symbol that reminds us of his body that was given for us.